You have before you in the Word of God this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, and I want you to have that whole section this morning because we're going to be looking at it both this week and next week together as we do a very short two-week vision series kicking off January. But this morning, we're simply going to read the first four verses. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. So don't be thrown off as I just read the first four verses this morning and as we begin to dive into God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Boy, it's hard to believe four years ago we were gathering for the first time in this room as Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Those of you who are here know we weren't even named at that point. We were, we were just getting started. We had the joy of having a, a beautiful, caring, loving relationship of our mother church, Parish Presbyterian Church. And we were a site of Parish Pres- Presbyterian Church at that point called Parish Downtown. And it would be a few months before we became Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. God was so gracious, so, so gracious during those days. And you as a people of God who've been with us since those early days have been incredibly patient as I've tried to figure out what it means to lead a congregation over the last four years. And God has been so good to give us wonderful elders and deacons, shepherds and leaders who have truly displayed the love of Christ in our midst, and I'm very thankful for that. I believe it's vitally important for congregations to stop like we're doing, whether it's at the beginning of the year or sometime during the year, to be reminded of why we do what we do. Uh, Business executives who read those wonderful books on leadership that I'm sure some of you in here who are are running companies or a part of the, the business class here in Williamson County or in Davidson County, uh, they will tell you in those books that you need to weave your vision into almost everything that you do. Because your employees and your partners and those who gather around you will forget it very, very quickly. And in fact, one church planting advisor says that every 28 days, the vision of your congregation simply leaks out of every single person that's there. And if you're not constantly filling it up, then we'll forget. Now, why is it we go to church? Why do we do these things? Do I really want to hear that guy preach another sermon? You know, why is this important? And it's important for us to stop and to genuinely ask those questions. Why is it that we do what we do? What's the purpose of us being here this morning? And that's that's really what we want to try to address in the next couple of weeks. 
Last week, I published in the pastoral notes just a, just, a, just a short section from what we call our philosophy of ministry document here at Cornerstone. It outlines both our vision, but also why we do what we do and how we get at the things that we believe that the Lord has called us to do. And one of the things I said at the very beginning of that document is that we are a gospel-centered community. And one of the things we mean by a gospel-centered community is that we believe that the gospel is not merely the way in which you get into the Christian life, but it's the way you actually get on in the Christian life. It's the way that you move through the Christian life. It's by the power of God and His salvation, Romans 1.16, that becomes not just the gateway, but actually the pathway through which we walk to where God has us now, to where it is that He's ultimately taking us to be in the presence of Christ face to face. This must have been an important issue in uh, the early church because we see Paul addressing this matter all of the time as we read through the, the letters and his epistles. As he's talking to the churches, he's constantly coming back to the essential truths of the gospel. And he's showing that those congregations, uh, how it is that they profess the faith but often don't live the faith, or how it is that they, what they've called the gospel is actually slightly distorted and has gotten off and confused with false teaching. And they need to be renewed in what it is are the essentials of the faith. And Paul's doing a similar thing with the church at Colossae as he writes this particular section, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. In fact, this entire book, he's seeking to renew them in the truths of the gospel. And this is one of the richest sections of all. In fact, I was listening to a sermon. It must have been a half a dozen years ago now, but I'd written it in my journal. And once I commit something to my journal, it seems for some reason I can remember it. It was Sinclair Ferguson, who's one of my uh, favorite uh, present living pastors, um, who uh, was a longtime minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South uh, Carolina. But he, he said of this section of the scripture that there's no greater word ever spoken about the essence of the Christian life. Then Colossians 3 verses 1 to 17. And because Sinclair Ferguson is 10 times smarter than me, and, and 20 times more gifted than me, my hearing aid was turned up at that point. And I began to say, Lord, teach me this truth. Teach me this truth. What is it about this passage that helps us get to the very core of what it is that the Christian life is all about? And so as we, as we, as we dive into just the first four verses this morning, I want you to have in mind the fact that this passage is a key. And the key is the gospel, and as we learn how to use the key of the gospel, we unlock by the Spirit's power the treasures that are made to available to us through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. If we don't know the key, or we've lost the key, or we've misplaced it, and we, or we don't really know what lock it's supposed to go in, so the treasures are not coming out and being, and being mined and enjoyed, then we're going to be ill-equipped to be able to walk the Christian life. And so I want to renew us in that call of what it means to be gospel-centered this week and next week. And this week is going to be, let's talk about the key itself. And then next week, let's talk about how to use it, how it actually works in the Christian life so that we become more and more conformed into the image of Jesus by His love, through His grace. Now to do that, I want to look at this passage under two headings this morning. I want to look first at this sobering fact and to try to as much as possible convince you that this is true that the world searches for a foundation 
that always leads to emptiness. That the world is constantly searching for a foundation, a foundation for life, but that search always leads to emptiness. doesn't matter what ultimately that object is going to be. It might be many different objects, but at the end of that search, what you get is, is emptiness. But that God in the gospel has given us a foundation. Not a foundation we have to search for, a foundation that comes into our lives, is given to us. A foundation that he gives to us, but once he gives it to us, we're sent on a search. And in that search, we are led to glory. We are led to glory. Now I want you to see from this passage where I'm getting this, these two points. This world searching for a foundation that leads to emptiness and God giving a foundation that leads to a search that leads to glory. Where am I seeing that in this text? Well, very simply, this first point, the world searches for a foundation that leads uh, to emptiness, is just in a few simple words that are spoken here. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, and here's the important phrase, not on the things that are of the earth. Paul is really outlining two ways in which we may focus our minds or direct our lives. We can focus our minds towards the things that are above, and we can thus seek or strive towards those things that our mind is focused on, or our mind can be focused upon the things of this earth, which means that we'll be driven towards and investing in our life here within the stuff or the things of the earth. And I want to tell a little bit of a personal story just to display that, that two ways to live that he's kind of showing here in verse 2 and unpack that so that you can feel actually how this works in our lives. It's a bit of a personal story for me and I've told some of you about this uh, more privately but I think, it's, I think it's a way for us to kind of inhabit and I want you to kind of enter this story with me so that you can see how this has played out in your, in your own life. When I moved here, I was 19 years of age. I came here to go to college. And as I was, as I was entering that, that season of, of study, having a great time, meeting wonderful friends, reading tremendous books, getting all excited about where it is that the Lord was sending me, I began to get a phone call from my mom on a regular basis about trouble back in our church home back in Mississippi. Now, my church home back in Mississippi is critically important to me. You've heard me talk about that from time to time. Formative to the way in which I understand my own faith, the way in which I received my faith, came through the portals of the faces in the community that I grew up in. In fact, I was the first baby born in that local congregation. My dad was a church-planting elder that founded the congregation, so I was the single child in the nursery. So you can imagine I was spoiled to death within this congregation. Lived there the first 19 years of my life, never knew another congregation. Now that's pretty rare, to be quite honest, as I talk to many people, uh, mainly because of travel and the, the speed at which we move today and from place to place in the modern society. But oftentimes because we root in the church for a while, we become disenfranchised with something or we get upset about something and we leave. But that was just not a part of my story. Now, because of that, I was deeply rooted in that place, very embedded there. And when I began to hear that there was trouble back home, great concern began to rise up in my heart. But, you know, troubles always are happening within churches in some way or in some form. And I said, cooler heads are going to prevail on this. Things are going to get better. But the realization is it didn't. It didn't get better at all. 
In fact, eventually my family had to leave that home church while I was here and they moved to another congregation. Now, when that happened, it didn't fully register to me the, the magnitude of actually how my soul had attached to my local congregation and all of the people there at which I'd grown up. I knew it was, I, I was disillusioned by it, and I couldn't quite grasp what this would mean or entail. But as I began to move towards my senior year, this was my junior year in college now when this finally happened, I began to move towards my senior year, I began to realize Wait, everything that I've really dreamed would happen now has been compromised by this transition. It had been my hope that I would become a teacher in the Christian school that that church, my home church, sponsored. It had been my hope and my prayer that I would have an opportunity to minister within the confines of that local congregation. I'd get married, I'd live out my days there and raise my family because that was the community that invested so deeply into me. And it seemed only right that after the Lord had trained me and guided me and led me that I'd go back to that place and I would return the favor to those who had served me for so many years. Sounds wonderful, right? Sounds like that should be God's plan for my life. Well, it was Nate's plan. But it was quite clear as I was going into my senior year, I'd worshiped there a few times as I'd gone back on holidays. It was quite clear that this is not the place I was supposed to be now. That the Lord had, in one way or in some form, deconstructed this vision for what it is that I was planning for my life to unfold. And what actually happened was not discouragement or disappointment, though both of those things were attached to it. What really happened was, a, was a, a slight, what I would look back on and call a slight identity crisis. What I didn't realize was that so much of me was embedded in that place that I literally didn't seem to have a concept as to who I would be apart from going back there. And, and being someone who has largely been in one location his whole life and has not flitted about, I didn't have the excitement of, well, now, you know, you, have, you can take the world by the tail. You can just go anywhere you want to go. That sounded scary and terrible. What I wanted was to go back to the place I knew. That was my desire. But now the Lord was, was by his providence, deconstructing something that I had cherished very, very deeply. But what I began to understand is that in that crisis... I had real, what I'd really done is I had too closely aligned myself idolatrously to the people and the place and the vision for my life that I'd captured. And when it was taken away from me, I wasn't just discouraged or disappointed. It didn't just take me a couple of days to get over it. I literally walked around as a man lost in the cosmos. I walked around as a man who was asking the question, then who am I if I'm not there? Who am I if I'm not doing those things with those people? I can't envision my life in any other way or capacity. And, and what, it, what it opened up for in my own heart was the recognition that I had founded a very good thing on the things of the earth. On the things of the earth. I had rooted my life, I'd rooted what I hoped was a future ministry, what I'd and rooted as an envision of teaching in the days to come as on the things of the earth and had really co-opted the identity that I've really been given in Christ. An identity that is founded and immovable and unshakable upon the rock that is the gospel itself. Now as I begin to unpack that for you, the realization is you, most of you in this room have had an experience similar to that. 
I mean, how many of you in here has your life turned out exactly the way you thought it was going to turn out? Right? I mean, no. It's just the case. And what happens is, is we oftentimes very idealistic in our younger days, think that things will unfold like the red carpet before us and all the little nuts and pieces are going to come together and then all of a sudden you don't get into the school you thought you were going to get into to get the degree that you needed to go to the place that you wanted to go. Or the, the person who you love didn't love you back. Or the job that you thought you'd get didn't come through. Or you got the job, but it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. And slowly but surely, one achievement or one loss after another is teaching you that this road of investing your life in the things of the earth leads to emptiness. Leads to emptiness. Because see, it wouldn't have changed if I had gotten everything I wanted. Let, let's just, let's do a revisionist piece of history. Let's say I'll go back to Mississippi. And everything that I wanted was achieved. Would it be to the satisfaction of what it is I desired or had dreamed it would be? No. It wouldn't have been. Not if I was holding it idolatrously. Not if I was placing divine expectations on earthly things. You see, that's what we often do, isn't it? We expect the things of this world to satisfy us rather than God himself and finding our identity, as Paul puts it here, hid away in Christ, our life, hid away in him. Instead, we look for it in you know, six-figure salaries and letters by our name or, or some achievement. And we think that's what's going to really do the, the, the trick, but we, really everything about life is teaching us to, to know better than that. In fact, if I had gotten everything, I think it would have been a lot like Jonathan Roch's recently published article in the Atlantic Monthly. Listen to what he says about his midlife crisis. Which, by the way, if you're going through a midlife crisis, this is for you. He says, I experienced a lot of success. I was in a stable and happy relationship. I was healthy and financially secure with a good career, marvelous colleagues. I published a book. I wrote on top outlets of journalism. I'd even won a prize. If you had described my life to me in college, here dream. This is, how, this is what he dreamed for. If you described my life, this life for me in college, I would have said, wow, that's exactly what I want. But morning after morning as I was waking up, I was disappointed, even depressed, my head abuzz. Obsessing about potential failures, feeling like life, real life, what life was supposed to be like, was passing me by. I needed some nameless kind of change or escape. You see, sometimes God's grace comes to us by deconstructing what we dreamed. And him not taking us down that path and letting us learn those lessons early, sometimes they come harder. Sometimes he gives us what we think we want. And then we find that it's not nearly as fulfilling as we've expected it to be. Well, no matter what side of that equation you're on, and all of us have been on that equation in one side or another or will be, the point is well taken here. That when you invest your life on the things of this world... It leads to emptiness. 
And the reason it leads to emptiness is the things of this world can't hold up your life. They were never designed to do that, you see. You know, if you look at your spouse as someone who was to bring you ultimate fulfillment in life, then you put expectations upon your spouse that God didn't. And he never designed them to do. And thus you have a very frustrating marriage. The recognition of our tendency to idolize the creation rather than give appropriate worship to the creature is a fundamental struggle in the human soul. And so what we're talking about this morning is this building on the things of the earth is not merely having things of the earth, being disappointed when we lose things of the earth, uh, or being happy even when we gain certain blessings of the things of the earth. It means that we've actually centered our life around our sense of identity and self on the things of the earth. And that's the very core of the struggle that's here. And I believe that what you hear in, in Jonathan's article in the Atlantic Monthly is that old phrase from the writer of Ecclesiastes, don't you? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Because the author of Ecclesiastes is teaching us that if you base yourself and your life and your identity upon the things of this earth, guess what? Your life will be as chaotic and as fragile as the things of earth. But if your life is based upon things that are stable, unmoving, and eternal, then your life will be as secure and as stable as those things. See, this leads us to point two. But that God gives us a foundation for life that leads to glory. Now, now that word emptiness that I'm using here, this things of the earth that's being described in these first four verses, is contrasted with this idea of glory. The Old Testament Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. It means heavy or weighty or substantial. That's why C.S. Lewis published that very famous sermon called The Weight of Glory. It means that something is, it has gravity to it and meaningfulness to it. If the world's search for a foundation of life leads them to a place of emptiness, where something is actually falling through and can't stabilize our life, the foundation that God gives to us is to lead us into a path of firmness or of glory that we would actually participate in and share in the glory of God. In fact, that's where this passage takes us. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So that's the direction of our life, towards glory, towards substance, towards weight, towards ultimate reality. We could use it in that language. Now the question is, how do we begin to turn ourselves away from the things of the earth to the things that are above? What are described here as seeking the things that are above. And then later in the next verse, set your mind on the things that are above. This is, of course, what the old Christians would call heavenly mindedness. It's not a phrase that we use a whole lot anymore, isn't it? In fact, if we use a phrase like heavenly mindedness, it's usually in the negative. You know, you know he is so heavenly minded that he's... No earthly good, right? You can probably finish that phrase. What we really want are people with, who are down to earth, right? People who have their feet firmly planted on the soil. They're salt of the earth types. And what we mean by the way that we use that insofar as we do is exactly right. Someone who's honest, who walks with integrity, someone who can connect and can relate. What the Bible actually teaches us, though, if we really want to be down to earth... 
is we're going to have to have our head in the clouds. We're going to have to have our eyes fixed upon the thing that is above. We're going to have to have our minds and our hearts set, literally like fixed in the immovable sense of the word. You know, when concrete sets up, that's what we have. We've got to have that kind of vision that's focused on the things which are above. In fact, I believe here Paul is teaching us, if you would ask the question, Paul, how do we seek the things that are above? He tells you in verse 3, you set your mind on them. You set your mind on the things above, that's how you seek the things that are above. Don't you seek after the things that your mind is filled with? Yeah, of course it is. The things that you daydream about. The things that you think about when you're not really thinking about anything at all is an indication of the thing of where your heart's really wedded, where you're really drawn. And as you think about that thing, you know what begins to happen. You begin to seek after it. You begin to be drawn to it. That's the point that Paul is making here. So we have to set our affections upon the things that are above if we want to truly seek and lead from this foundation of godliness into the path of glory. Now, you won't set your mind on something until it is beautiful. You won't set your mind on something until it is beautiful. Jonathan Edwards said years ago that we should sit in the truth until it is beautiful to us. Not a great phrase. It's a wonderful way to chew and meditate on the Word of God. You read something, and sometimes you may feel this way as you read the Bible. You read a truth, and you think, I should like that more than I'm emotionally responding to it right now, right? You've had that, that it's a strange feeling to know, I should be more excited about that than, than I am. But part of the path forward is the integrity of confessing that you're not, and beginning to ask the Lord in obedience to come in and reorient and change your life. So in order to set your mind on the things above, if your heart's not there, you have to be drawn to do it. You, it has to become beautiful in your sight. As it becomes beautiful in your sight, you'll be like a moth to flame. You'll want to move directly in its path. You'll want to seek it. You'll want to strive for it. You know, I, it's my yearly try to lose 20 pounds. Right? And you, you've seen me do this. Some of you have seen me kind of go smaller and get bigger again and smaller. I've lost probably 300 pounds over the last few years. <laughs> Not really, but it feels that way sometimes. Now, wh why does that happen? I tell you what happens. For a little while, feeling better, looking better, being healthier, which is just not as strong motivation for me. It needs to be, but it's not for a little while, looks better than Krispy Kreme donuts. And then after a while, Krispy Kreme donuts look better than that. And you know what my problem is? Is that desire for that instant satisfaction and gratification that comes from that feeling of sticking something in your mouth that's marvelous. <laughs> rather than sticking something in your mouth that's not so marvelous about a future great greater marvelous that would come down the line, right? That's how this works. One has to actually be drawn in affection towards that thing, even if it causes a little pain in the meantime. In the passage that's before us in verses 5 to 17, there are two leading commands that come out, verse 5 and verse 17. Put off then is the beginning of verse 5. Paul is saying if the truths of verse 1, and 1 to 4 are true, then it's going to teach you to put off the old man, and it's going to teach you to put on the new man, which the new man's going to look a lot like Jesus Christ. But the process of putting off the old man 
The things of the flesh, the things that often are the guttural, instinctual, sinful flesh that for some time we may have catered in or delved in and let footholds get, uh, get a part of our soul, is difficult to say no to for a while to say yes to the things that we know are best. Okay, now that process, that practice of, process of practicing the faith through the affections of the mind is something we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. But I think one of the reasons that we're not drawn to the things which are above is because we don't see them very well. We don't see them. We don't have imaginations that have been captured by the beauty of who Jesus is. That's the trouble. And what happens is the sins of this world look actually more enticing. And investing in the things of this world look more enticing than investing in the harvest of righteousness that will come where moth and rust have no form or way of corruption towards but will last eternally forever. We don't have a vision and imagination to see the beauty of Christ. And what Paul is trying to do here is to show you that beauty. He's trying to show you that beauty and he does it by actually leading us into this doctrine known as the union with Christ. Being unified with Christ. You may or may not have heard of this glorious doctrine of union with Christ, but there's nothing sweeter than this doctrine of union with Christ, particularly, particularly connected to these truths of the gospel. And, and what he is saying here is that, is that if you're going to seek the things above, you have to first know this about yourself, verse 1. If then, or it could literally be translated since, since you have been raised with Christ... Now, that's in the past tense. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ Jesus, you've already been raised from the dead. You've already been lifted up into the heavenly places. You've already ascended. This morning, though, your body and soul are sitting on a pew here, in corner, here at Cornerstone Prez. Christ Jesus, who is your life, is before the throne of God, and God, as he loves Jesus, loves you with the same degree and measure by which he loves Jesus. He has no less love and affection and honor and joy and rejoicing in you than he has in Jesus. Now, that's utterly astonishing. That's an amazing idea and thought, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You need to quit thinking about your life as here, your life is not here, which is why when you try to make your life here, it winds up going to pot. It winds up going empty. It winds up failing you. Why? Because you won't find your life in that job promotion. You won't find your life in that new location, that new venture. You only find your life in Jesus. Your life is hidden away in him. And to the degree that you are pursuing your life, you are pursuing Christ. And to the degree that you're pursuing Christ, you're pursuing your life. And to that degree alone. And so there's this, there's this clear connection that Paul is making. He's saying, you've got to set your mind on this reality that today as we're worshiping, do you see yourself in Christ before Almighty God, beautiful and righteous and glorious, the fullness of the design for which you were made, His righteousness being credited to you, God embracing you in His love, having perfect harmony with everyone who is around you, growing into the gifts and the abilities that he has granted to you, providing for you to the full degree of the inheritance and the abundance of Jesus and what it is he's done. Do you see yourself that way? 
Or do you see yourself as a pauper? As one who needs a little bit more to feel okay? That's really the question of the text. Who are you? Where is your life? Brene Brown says that many North Americans struggle with what she calls an epidemic of scarcity. She says we live as if we are people who don't have enough. You know, we go to bed at night and we didn't get enough done. We wake up in the morning, we didn't get enough sleep. We go about our day and we didn't make enough money. But it's, this, it's this epidemic of scarcity. It's this idea that we don't have enough. We are the richest people on the face of the earth. And I can guarantee you when you look at your budget, you don't feel that way. But that's not a problem with your budget. That's not a problem with your bottom line. It's a problem with your heart. It's a problem with our heart. That's what this passage is saying. It doesn't take long for you to travel and meet Christians abroad who have absolutely nothing. And you know what Christians in North America say when they go to those places and they come back from them? You know what they're astonished by? The joy of those people. The joy that they have. Why are we so surprised by it? Because we don't have it. And they don't have anything and have it. That's the elusive nature of what it is we're talking about. And that means it should teach us that the things of this earth are not the means through which true and genuine joy and contentment and satisfaction come. It's going to be on seeking the things that are above. And finding that your life in Christ is there. You see, that's what, that's what Paul says when he says in verse 3, For you have died. You think, well, I probably would have remembered that if I had died. You know, it's a pretty momentous occasion uh, when, when someone dies. Usually people take notice. When that happens, funeral services happen. No, of course that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you have died to the old man. You've died to the old way. You know how you used to live? According to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's dead to you now. That's dead to you now. You know that's, a, that's false advertising. Every time the commercial comes on and says, just a little bit more of this and your life will go great. Take this pill. Get this fix. But we still do it. We still do it. And some of us go to our graves doing it. And somehow or another we have more technology and, and blessings and resources and the more and more that we have, the less and the less we know its meaning and its value. You see, that's the poverty of soul. That's the poverty of soul. And what, we're being, what Paul is inviting us in here is that we are sons and daughters of the king no matter what your bank account looks like. Um, no matter what sort of achievements or letters are by your name. No matter what people think about you. No matter what your progress report is in the neighborhood. You have a resume that has been given to you by Jesus Christ and it has all of his credentials applied to your account. And there is absolutely nothing you could earn in this life that would make you a wee bit more lovable to him. And there is nothing that you could do in this life that would in any way compromise his love for you now. Do you see that? Now, if you see that, here's what begins to happen. Fear is dispelled. 
Fear is absolutely dispelled. Perfect love genuinely casts out fear. Christ has perfectly loved us. If we are absolutely accepted in him, why are we worried about ourselves all the time? What is there to be afraid of? If we die, it's Christ. If we live, it's Christ. And the measure of his love doesn't change between those. If we sin, we can repent. If, we, if we're successful, we can be humble and thankful. There's absolute freedom and joy and the lack of fear that begins to come up so that we can lay everything on the line for Jesus with joy. You see, Paul's inviting the Colossians in that kind of life, and he wants us to know that's actually at your disposal. We're like a people who have the largest bank account with all of the money of the world in it, living as if we're in an alleyway in a cardboard box, and we can't buy ourselves a five-cent cup of coffee. Because we don't know the investment of Jesus in our account. No one has, we've not been captured by the bottom line of the eternal account of Jesus. All we know is we wish we had a little bit more money in our physical account. Do you see, this is what he's calling us unto. But as you begin to see it with your mind's eye this morning, does it become beautiful to you? Don't you want to ask, oh Lord, functionally, how might I constantly keep this awareness? Right? How could we do that? How could we become a community that's constantly nurturing this kind of awareness in one another so that we're lifting each other up and guiding each other along so that we're leading each other by the Spirit's help to glory? Well, that's exactly what Paul is teaching us in verses 5 to 17, which we'll look at next week. Is that this is the pathway. As you, and once you grasp this vision of the gospel that is true for you right now as you sit, in this room, regardless of your background, if you're in Christ, these truths are here. How do you appropriate those truths for walking, for living by faith? That's the question. That's what we want to look at next week together. So we want to explore that beautiful truth. And I just want to, in closing, say, for the Christian, you may have a perceived crisis of identity, but you never have a crisis of identity. And until you know that right now, in Christ, the Father with loving gaze sees your entire past. He sees your entire present and future. And as he looks at you through Christ, he takes you, as it were, into his presence with utter joy and love and delight. And he says, You're, you are my child. Until you see that, the things of this earth will be so big and important to you. But when you see that, and you begin to set your mind on the things that are above, it's like the old hymn writer used to say, the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray he'll do that. Father in heaven, we would ask that the things of the earth would go strangely dim because the things of heaven, Christ, him crucified, his ascension, his glory, his return, and our position in him, united to him, would be so big 
and so majestic in our mind's eye that that ultimate reality would take hold of us, that the things of this earth would roll off our back like water off a, da- a duck's back, and that we would move through this life in a way that is, that is joyous and free and nimble and with a skip, regardless of our circumstances, because we are children of the King, and He has loved us in Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray this day that you would penetrate hard hearts in this room. Even my hard heart that is so numb sometimes to hear these truths afresh. Thank you for speaking them even into my own heart today. Break us down to build us up. Deconstruct our investments in this earth that we're cobbling together to try to keep ourselves together. Break them down if necessary to give us the true foundation of Jesus Don't let us get to the end of our lives praising a house that's built on sand. Let us go into eternity. Not even even with a mind's eye towards the house, only looking at the rock on which it is built. For it is only in that rock that the true peace, the true joy, the true stability the true satisfaction that every heart in here hungers for can be found. Make Jesus known to our hearts today and set him as a vision inescapable before our eyes this year and always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.